the practices that we have been working with during this week of retreat come from a tradition called the Theravada of Southeast Asia and India. And the literal meaning of the Theravada, Thera means elders. It means the way of the elders. And in my own life, um, growing up in a fairly difficult family with a lot of violence and intermittent poverty and enough battering so that my mother couldn't often go out of the house because she was too black and blue to be seen in public um, and other such things. Because of my own suffering, I began to look for some other way to live and had the good fortune several decades ago, the privilege to go seek elders in Asia, in the forest traditions of Burma and Thailand. And the teacher that I found to study with, I was really looking for some other way to live in this world beside what I saw around me, whose name was Ajahn Chah. Ajahn means master. Was someone who'd lived his life out in the forests. And while he had a large monastery, he also had a bag of roots and herbs and shells and stones that he used for healing. And he knew the sleeping places of the wild animals, of the tigers that still lived in the jungles. He was one of the kind of elders that we all know that are still connected to the rhythms of the earth. One of the role of elders, which we have so few of in this time, one of the role of the elders is to be the people who tell the truth. And when one elder sees another, generally they just know each other. So a friend of mine arranged for um, the Dalai Lama to meet with a famous spiritual elder from Senegal. And he said they sat and they mostly laughed together. And whether it's Asian or African or Native American or Mayan, um, the elders know. When you go into a forest monastery, to shave your head and enter in the initiation practices to become a monk. And they take you into a grove in the forest for the ceremonies of ordination. And you bow to them. They bow back to you. And they address you in this phrase that you may have heard if you read the Tibetan Book of the Dead, for example, because it's the phrase read into the ear of someone who's dying. They address you, O nobly born, O you who are the son or the daughter of the Buddha, we welcome you. Whoever you are, whatever your background or class or race or caste, you are bowed to and said, O nobly born, there is in you an innate wisdom what my teacher Ajahn Chah called the one who knows. And it is there in every one 
and you are invited to join us in awakening to that wisdom. Gandhi put it this way. He said, I claim to be no more than an average person with less than average ability. I have not the shadow of a doubt that any man or woman can achieve what I have if he or she would make the same effort and cultivate the same hope and faith. So it's really there in every human being, this potential. And the way that my elders taught, they began by teaching what they called the liberation of the heart. And it's really found in every tradition. Their teachers' teachings began with the Buddha's four fundamental truths to understand and to bring an empowerment to each who practice. The first of these fundamental or universal truths is the truth of dukkha, which George mentioned on the first night, awakening to the truth of suffering. So when I came to the forest monastery, my teacher looked at me, and I'd been in the Peace Corps and medical teams in the Mekong River Valley during the war. So that was my way of finding a monastery. He looked at me and he said, I hope you're not afraid to suffer. That was his opening gambit. And I was a little bit taken aback. And then he said, there are two kinds of suffering in this world, the kind that you run from and then it follows you. And that the kind that you turn around and face until you find an end to it. Some kinds of dukkha or suffering are called inevitable dukkha, aging, sickness, loss, death, change, that we all experience as human beings, the alternation of pleasure and pain, of gain and loss, of praise and blame. And there's no security to be found outside of that truth. As Helen Keller said, security is mostly a superstition. Life is either a daring adventure or nothing. So this is some of the dukkha that is part of this human realm. But there's an enormous amount of other dukkha or suffering that is entirely human caused. Injustice, hunger, racism, lack of respect, the sufferings that we know worldwide. So that when one of the colleagues that I work with who is a West African medicine man, Malidoma Somay, first came to this country after his initiation, he said it was very difficult to walk in our cities because with his eyes opened in the way they were from his practices. He said, your streets are filled with the ungrieved dead. They were crowded with those who have died and not been properly mourned for. And he actually had to go back to Africa to ask his elders to close his sight so he could live in this Western society. 
And we have seen it all around us and experienced it all around us. John Gatto, who was awarded the New York City Teacher of the Year Award, stood in front of the mayor, the school board, and thousands of parents and castigated them for the sole murder of one million black and Latino children. He said in his speech, think of the things that are killing us as a nation, drugs, brainless competition, recreational sex, the pornography of violence, gambling, alcohol, and the worst pornography of all, lives devoted to greed, to buying things, to accumulation. All are addictions of dependent personalities, and that is what the brand of schooling we have created will produce for our children. We see it around us in the growth of racist and poverty prisons, this enormous system that if you're born into poverty or into a certain place, you're destined for prison. We see it in the fact that the U.S. of A is the largest exporter of weapons and killing machines on the face of the earth. And yet there are hungry people everywhere. Joanna Macy writes, even the scientists, those whose eyes are open, can see that there's no technological fix, no magic bullet, no internet, no computers that can save us from population explosion, deforestation, climate disruption, warfare, poison by pollution, and wholesale extinction of cultures, plants, and animals. We are going to have to want different things, seek different pleasures, pursue different goals than those that have been driving us and our global economy. So there is inevitable dukkha of aging and death and change. There's the suffering around us that we know in this world. And there's also very personal suffering. Our fears, our conflict, our loss, depression, our divorces and struggles to love, our aging, our own sorrows. And when we come to sit on retreat as this, we carry within us the cultural pain and grief of the world. And we also carry our personal suffering as tension and stress and tears. And when the Buddha sat under the tree of enlightenment and awakened, it said, the tears began to run down his face for the sorrows that human beings cause to themselves and one another, tears of compassion, the unnecessary sorrows. And when they hit the earth, they came alive as Tara, who is the Bodhisattva or Buddha of compassion. So this is the first truth of the elders, the truth of Dukkha. The second is the cause especially for all those forms human created. And the cause is grasping in all its forms, greed, hatred, ignorance, 
and the grasping to those give rise to injustice and warfare and slavery and racism, to lying, killing, stealing, and worse. And we know it if we look at the forces of greed worldwide that are at this time legitimized as something good to export to everyone. Men and women are free to choose anything in economic societies except to opt out. The ultimate treason is to prefer to neither produce nor consume wealth. Cultures that do not believe in economics and in the sale of goods and people must be developed out of existence. Roads, schools, and hospitals are the preferred weapons of destruction. So there's this exporting of the culture of greed and its, you know, effect. There's hatred, and from hatred is born racism and warfare and fear and all of the tribalism that's bred in people in societies now, whether it's in Kosovo or Afghanistan or in Rwanda. People have actually used the modern media to breed hatred of one group to another. And ignorance. And ignorance mostly is that that wishes to close our eyes and not want to see. The best adjusted person in modern society, says Anne Wilson Schaefe, is the person who's not dead and not alive, just numb, a zombie. For if you're dead, you're not able to contribute work to the society. But if you're fully alive, you must constantly say no to many of the processes of the society, the polluted environment, the nuclear threat, the racism, the arms race, drinking unsafe water, and eating carcinogenic foods. Thus, it is in the interest of consumer society to promote those things that take the edge off, keep us busy with our fixes, slightly numbed out and zombie-like. In this way, modern consumer society as a whole functions as an addict. The causes of suffering, greed, hatred, and then denial, delusion, not wanting to see. And when we personally identify with grasping, not just the world around us, but when we get lost in what is called the body of fear, we perpetuate that suffering by clinging and grasping. And we can do it in all kinds of ways. Our children, money, the things we value, even those can become sources of suffering if we don't understand wisdom. Because our children are given to us to love and care for, but not to grasp and possess and control. And the things of the world in the same, the more that we grasp them, the more that we suffer. And no one escapes because we live in this modern world 
where the causes of suffering are what are taught to us. And even though it seems like the Vietnam War happened to the Vietnamese, it happened to everyone in this room. And what happened in Rwanda didn't happen just to the Rwandans, it happened to everyone in this room. And yet, we cannot demonize others completely. As Solzhenitsyn wrote, if only it were so simple, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds and it were necessary simply to separate them from the rest of us and destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being and who among us is willing to destroy a piece of their own heart. So when we sit, not only do we come to see the measure of sorrows of the world and personally that have been given to us in this human life, but we also become aware of our own clinging, of our fear, of the body of fear that we get lost in, even of our resistance to being alive, to feeling. And what we're asked to do is sit in the truth of suffering, in the truth of beauty, both, and learn to bear them both with a dignity. Ellie Wiesel, who writes a lot about the Holocaust, says, suffering confers neither privileges nor rights. It all depends on how one uses it. If you use it to increase the anguish of others, you are degrading, even betraying it. And yet the day will come when we shall all understand that suffering can elevate human beings as well as diminish them. God help us to bear our sufferings well. The third of the truths, or the fundamental principles spoken of by these elders, O nobly born, just as there is suffering, there is also liberation. The sure heart's release, nirvana, which is the end of greed, the end of hatred, the end of delusion, the end of the fires. And in the midst of this very human life that we've been given, where we all partake of birth and death, of the 10,000 joys and 10,000 sorrows, there is another way. George Washington Carver's words, how far you go in life depends on your being tender with the young, compassionate with the aged, sympathetic with the striving and tolerant of the weak and the strong because someday in life you will have been all of these. There is a freedom and it comes not by turning away from life but rather recognizing the capacity to face directly what is true of this human life 
with our heart open and with the eyes of wisdom. And we all know this freedom. Martin Luther King Jr. said in one of the most difficult moments, speaking to his congregation, we will match your capacity to inflict suffering with our capacity to endure suffering. We will meet your physical force with soul force. We will not hate you, but we cannot in all good conscience obey your unjust laws. And we will soon wear you down by our capacity to suffer. And in winning our freedom, we will so appeal to your conscience that we will win your freedom as well. There is liberation. I worked for a time assisting my teacher Gosananda in the Cambodian refugee camps as hundreds of thousands of refugees poured out during the war in Cambodia. And one of his tasks was to build temples in the midst of these camps. And in Sakel, which was the camp for the refugees from the Khmer Rouge villages, he decided to build a big bamboo temple, kind of a platform in the middle. The Khmer Rouge underground in the camp, they were still there, warned people that if they went to the temple, once they got out of the camp, they would be shot and killed. So my teacher didn't know what would happen, but he patiently made this bamboo temple and did all the prayers, announced its opening. This is in a dry, barren rice paddy in the hot season, people in little tiny bamboo huts with almost nothing, one old grandfather and two nieces, or an uncle, you know, and one boy, all that was left of devastated families. And then they rang the temple bell to come into the center of the square to open the temple. And 25,000 people came, filled the square. And first he just began the simple chanting of respect that had been part of their culture for 2,000 years before the temples were burned and destroyed. People began to chant with him, the whole group. And then it was time for him to teach. And I wondered what could he say to people who had endured so much devastation, so much horror, And he looked at them and he began to recite one verse from the beginning of the Buddhist teachings of the Dhammapada that goes, hatred never ceases by hatred, but by love alone is healed. This is the ancient and eternal law. And he began to chant it over and over in Sanskrit and in Cambodian until the whole 25,000 people was chanting this. And there was a sense as he did it that no matter how vast was the sea of sorrows of these people, that the truth he spoke and the freedom that it pointed to was even bigger than their suffering. So this third truth of the elders is that we too can find in ourselves the great heart of a Buddha. It is our birthright, our true nature. And in it, 
there is what is called the deathless or the timeless. Oscar Romero, he put it this way. He said, My life has been threatened many times. My death, when it comes, will be for the liberation of my people and a testimony of hope for the future. One bishop will die, but the church of the people will never perish. I don't believe in death without resurrection. They can kill me, but they cannot kill the voice of justice. If they kill me, I will rise again in the Salvadorian people. And so the invitation of this truth is to find that which is timeless and deathless in your own heart. Then the fourth of these truths, that there is suffering in the world, that there is a cause, and that there is an end to it, the third truth. The fourth, the elders teach, there's a path to the end of this suffering. It's called the middle path, the place of balance, which neither denies and runs from and turns away from the world, nor is it caught in reaction, nor is it caught in the sufferings and the struggles of the world, but rather that place in our being where we step out of the body of fear, out of that small sense of self, and rest in our true nature and meet the world with the dignity of our own being. This path, which is sometimes described as the Eightfold Path that George spoke of the first night, also called the Middle Path, is the path of mindful compassion. This Middle Path is discovered when we find within ourselves the capacity to open to the 10,000 joys and the 10,000 sorrows with a sacred presence, or what Thich Nhat Hanh calls a healing presence. And the training that this particular tradition offers is to take the very elements of our own body and heart and mind and turn them into beauty by bringing attention and compassion and finally liberation to whatever arises. It's not so easy. You can see that as you sit here. But anything noble and good and beautiful is not so easy. From Cesar Chavez, when we're really honest with ourselves, we must admit that our lives are all that really belong to us. So that how we use our lives, that determines what kind of person we are. It is my deep belief that only by giving our lives do we find life. I'm convinced that the truest act of courage 
the strongest act of humanity is to sacrifice ourselves for something higher, for something we believe, to give our life to something beautiful. So these elders would go on, O nobly born, O you who are the son and daughter of a Buddha, there are four principal areas to train this awakening in your own experience, to reawaken your own Buddha nature. The first is within this fathom-long body to train a compassionate awareness of this body, to find what is called an embodied freedom. There's a lot of spiritual traditions that mistakenly try to get us to leave our bodies. You know, or we do it because we've been so pained or wounded that that spirituality that takes us away kind of appeals to us. But an out-of-the-body experience is pretty easy. What we're after here is something more difficult called an in-the-body experience. (laughs) And to do that with mindfulness and compassion means that we have to be present for how our body is without looking in the mirror and saying, yuck. You know, I hate this. I don't want that. I want my body to be some other body, younger, more beautiful, more handsome. I, w- I don't want to be getting bald. I've had that thought, I assure you. you know? <laughs> but to bring a genuine attention to this human form means that we hold it as sacred. And the sitting practice that we do on the retreat is really one that allows the body to open and heal. The stresses, the pains, all the things that we carry start to pour out of us as we sit. Sometimes it hurts more. It's not that you're doing anything wrong. It's that you're finally feeling and opening to that which has been kept in there as we keep going for so long. And the healing comes simply by the presence of your heart and the openness of your awareness. Poet Mary Oliver wrote, you do not have to be good. You do not have to walk on your knees for a hundred miles across the desert repenting. You only have to let the soft animal of your body love what it loves. And so we sit and allow to open the pain the sleepiness, the restlessness, the stress, the fear, and bow to each as it comes to make that space to be big enough to allow all of that one after another and to breathe with it until we can find an embodied compassion, an embodied wisdom. I've been working on a new book that's partly interviews with people who've done 30, 40 years of spiritual practice in different traditions and how it's changed them, particularly ones who are teachers, Buddhist, Hindu, various other ones. I not only interview them, but I also interview their spouses. (laughs) Say, okay, 
he became a Zen master, did it make any difference? <laughs> but here's one account from a woman that I interviewed who was a wonderful spiritual teacher. She said, and this was after a lot of being a kind of well-known teacher, she said, a large abdominal tumor was removed, and with it all that I had clung to as certainties in my life. I quit work and stopped the spiritual teaching. I turned to anything I thought might help me change what had led to the cancer, from acupuncture to depth therapy. I became humble before the body. That was 15 years ago, and I can now say that it was the biggest turning point and awakening of all. I had used my body to practice, and now I had to inhabit it, respect it, love it with all the feminine force and nurturing and understanding I had withdrawn into my spiritual life. Keeping my heart in my body became my practice, and it has become glorious. Even the first awakenings into perfection or grace did not come close to showing me the joy of living in the body, in the senses, in each moment. I love my life in a new way. This has become the place of freedom. So this attention is a kind of respect and a reclaiming of our bodies, of the holiness of our hands and our feet and our eyes and our chests and our breasts and our genitals as holy. And reclaiming a kind of innocence that we lose through all our sufferings. There's a story of a little girl who's watched her mother leaving for work every day. Her mother was a professor of art in the university. She was like six years old and she said, Mommy, you know, you're going off to work. What exactly is it you do there? And she said, well, honey, I teach people how to draw. And the little girl looked at her with wide eyes and said, you mean they forget? <laughs> and there's a way in which what's happened to us has made us forget our beauty and our innocence. An embodied wisdom which comes with this presence allows us both to live beautifully as we are and also to die well because we will die. It's not one that grasps but one that brings respect. The second of these four areas of attention on this path of liberation, O nobly born, bring compassionate attention to the world of feelings. When we cannot feel, our world is lost. It is because we cannot feel that the world is lost. This is from Simone Weil. The danger is not that the soul should doubt whether there is any bread, but that by a lie it should persuade itself that it is not hungry. And what happens to us, what really kills the soul, is that we lose touch with the feeling body that's connected to our heart and our spirit and all kinds of things shut us down, that thing I read about the addicted society. And because we can't feel, we can do terrible things to ourselves and to one another. 
Alex Baldwin put it this way. He said, I imagine one of the reasons people cling to their hate and ignorance so stubbornly is because they see or they sense that once that is gone, they would be forced to deal with their pain. My teacher, Ajahn Chah, said at one point to me, he said, if you haven't wept deeply, you haven't really begun to meditate. To allow feelings to become part of this sacred attention with respect is essential for our freedom. I went to a temple in Hawaii a few years ago called Pua Honua Ohonaunau, which is the city or the temple of refuge, this huge black lava walls on the rocky shore of the big island, fantastic place. And I learned there that in the Hawaiian culture, if you had committed the worst deed, killed someone, broken the worst taboo, if you could find your way inside the temple, you would be forgiven. First, I thought, does this place still work? You know, could I too be forgiven? But then I began to imagine, because it was very powerful, imagine what it would be like if we built temples of forgiveness instead of prisons. It takes a great deal of forgiveness to open to our feelings because of all the things that we've done and regret and wish were different, suffered through. One man who came on an early retreat was a Vietnam veteran who was waking up two, three, four nights a week in the middle of the night screaming, seeing it all over again. He'd been a medic in the DMZ in the worst days, just sorting out body parts, children, adults. And each time he closed his eyes asleep, it would all come back, the horrors of it. And as he began to sit on retreat, it all came up for him again, and he got really terrified as he said, I was afraid that that which had ruled my nights would now rule my days as well. But instead, he said, I was amazed to discover by openly facing that which I had most deeply feared that a whole new capacity awakened in me. And as I sat there seeing the scenes of carnage, the tears of compassion finally began to flow for every one of those people, killer and killed, and myself as well, as a young man there, not knowing what he was doing, holding these bodies. To become wise with emotions is not easy. The invitation from these elders is to take a seat and open one's heart to the full range of this human life, to honor them without being controlled or lost in them on one side and without denying them on the other to find that centeredness so that then we can choose how to use them, that their power becomes transformed in us or for us. Mahatma Gandhi put it this way, I have learned through bitter experience the one supreme lesson to conserve my anger And as heat conserved is transmuted into energy, even so 
our anger controlled can be transmuted into a power which can move the world. Awareness of body, awareness of the human feeling life. The third is to train a compassionate awareness of the mind. The mind is the forerunner of all things, says the Buddha. How we think makes our world. If we think with a poisoned mind, we create a poisoned world. And if we think with an awakened mind, we create an awakened world. So much is born out of the conditioned ways we have learned to think. And so we sit and begin to mindfully and compassionately know the nature of mind. Rabindranath Tagore writes, most people believe the mind to be a mirror, more or less accurately reflecting the world outside of them, not realizing, on the contrary, the fact that the mind itself is the principal element of creation. And so we sit and find this seat in the center, what's called in bullfighting the carencia, that place where the bull finds its strength in the ring no matter what's happening. And we begin to see all the kinds of stories and conditioning that the mind reveals to us. There's a story of Mullah Nasruddin, this Middle Eastern holy fool and teaching figure. He went in the bank one day to cash a check and they said, could you please identify yourself? So he reached in his pocket and pulled out a small mirror and looked at it and said, yep, that's me, all right. <laughs> when we sit, we start to see the depth of the conditioning of how we view ourselves, those repeated thoughts. I'm a beautiful person, an ugly person, a smart person, a not-so-smart person, a this person, a that person. You know all those stories that we tell over and over that keeps ourselves going, that limit us. And we also see how deeply we're conditioned by the world around us because we grow up in a racist society. We are all poisoned by racism. And we each carry it, and I see it in myself. You know the fear and the hatred and all of those things that have been secretly stashed in there by living in the sea of racism. And how unconscious they are even if one's intention is to make them unconscious, to make them be revealed, they still will come out in other ways. So many ways we're conditioned. And to look into the mind is really humbling because it has no pride, and it will do anything. I mean, you sit here, it will do anything. You know, I was teaching a retreat like this many years ago, and, and my, my lovely wife and I were in the early years of our relationship, which was very stormy and difficult. And we were supposed to travel together. Um, she was supposed to meet me, and I'd made all these arrangements, and then she called and said, no, it wasn't the right thing. She couldn't go. She had other things, and she kind of, you know, and I got very angry at her because I'd done all this, and we were supposed to do this, and I wanted to be with her. And, 
we're really arguing and fighting about it. And all of a sudden they ring the bell for the morning meditation and I had said that I would come and do loving kindness meditation. <laughs> so I say, I'm sorry, I have to go, you know, and I hang up the phone. And I go in and there are all these people waiting and I start and I say, you know, think of someone you love a lot and send them your feelings of love. And then it's quiet for a minute and I'm thinking, that bitch, you know, excuse me. I'm going to call her back. It's so, you know, now think of another person you want to forgive, right? Damn it. That's completely, I'm, I'm, and I'm going through my list, you know. And I could see my mind do both of those. And because I had done some meditation, it was like, okay, you know, here we go. And actually, by the end of it, I was in a better spag, kind of talked myself into a little bit of loving kindness and called her back. But, you know, when you start to look at the mind and the kind of stories that it tells and the ways that we're caught, and we can sit here, we've had all our sufferings, but then we can add to it. We can imagine a hundred more. I mean, Mark Twain said at one point, he said, my life has been filled with terrible misfortune most of which never happened. You know? And so to begin to be aware of the nature of the mind itself, to get bigger than that thought machine, the story is this. A bear paced up and down the 20-foot length of its cage. And when, after many, many years, the cage was removed, the bear continued to pace up and down the same 20-foot length of space. It didn't even notice. And what the elders said in this forest monastery, they said, if you sit, you will learn that it's possible to step outside of the conditions of the mind. And if it were not possible, the Buddha would not have taught it, and we would not teach it to you. But because it is possible, you too can do this. And so what we begin to do, just as we work with the body and the feelings, is that we begin to make the space that allows the mind to move without identifying with everything, without getting caught up. Someone gave me my last birthday, this birthday card from the drugstore, and has a picture of the Dalai Lama on it with his sunglasses, you know, smiling, surrounded by these other monks, and it's called the Dalai Lama's birthday party. And he's holding this big present that he just opened the wrapper of, looking inside, and he exclaims, wow, nothing, just what I always wanted. <laughs> There's some way in which, as we sit, we move from the thought structures and from the body of fear to open to a kind of spaciousness. Or another language is to say, we drop from the mind into the heart, that we rest in the heart. And all the thoughts, even the good ones, become more like waves in the ocean of the heart, or that great space. So the Ojibwe Indians had a saying, sometimes I go about pitying myself, and all the while I'm being carried by great winds across the sky.
And so we see all those things, and yet something greater is happening. And we're invited to find that freedom that then can choose which thoughts we'll follow and which <coughs> we'll nurture and which we let go of. And finally, the fourth of these trainings of sacred attention, of the middle path, awareness of body, of feelings, of mind. The fourth is called awareness of the Dharma, a mindful compassion to learn the laws of the world. And this kind of liberation is an invitation to shift our identity, to get bigger, to not be possessed by things. It sees, we see, the one in us who is wise, who knows, acknowledges that all things change. That nothing we do can stop the truth of change, of aging, of loss, of people dying. And that grasping things does not bring happiness. That happiness comes not from what we get, but from what we give. It allows us this place of openness, of seeing the laws of the world, to see with new eyes, to see with what's called in India the glance of mercy. Sometimes you meet this elder and they look at you with these eyes of so much compassion that nobody's ever seen you in that way before. And just their glance is enough to change your life. Thomas Merton put it this way, then it was as if I suddenly saw the secret beauty of their hearts, the depths of their hearts where neither sin nor knowledge can reach, the core of the reality, the person that each one is in the eyes of the divine. If only they could see themselves as they really are, if only we could see each other that way, there would be no more need for war, for hatred, for cruelty, or greed. I suppose the big problem would be that we would fall down and worship each other. And to see with mindful compassion is to see deeply, to see beyond all the conditions and the changing things that we grasp and in releasing them to see the secret beauty. To know that we can't possess our bodies, our children, that we don't control things, but rather we're given them as caretakers to honor this earth. Each one of us is born with certain gifts. And as we know, one of the greatest horrors or tragedies for a child is to be born in that circumstance where their gifts are not allowed to flower on this earth. I mean, in some ways, that's the worst of what racism does. It starts with children. And as we free our own hearts, there comes within us a natural movement, a spontaneous movement, to bring our gifts back to the world. It's said in Zen there are only two things. You sit and you sweep the garden, and it doesn't matter how big the garden is. 
You sit to transform your heart, to open yourself so that you're really free. And then you get up to the garden of the world and you bring your gift into it. And in whatever form of practice one does, the Mayan year of initiation that's given, you know, to teenagers, or the Maasai, or the Buddhist training, they're really to awaken this freedom and fearlessness and dignity and ease that is our human birthright. And from that, we can bring our gifts into the world no matter what we face. Many of you have probably heard of Los Madres de la Plaza de Mayo, the mothers of the Plaza de Mayo in Argentina. Recently, they were awarded this great peace award, kind of like the Nobel Prize. And they were interviewed for the Los Angeles Times. Twenty years ago, the mothers went to the plaza in front of the presidential palace to directly confront a bureaucracy of horror. The mothers were fed up with futile visits to military chaplains who were wearing army boots under their robes. And to the complaints office where the dictatorship denied systematically kidnapping, (coughs) robbing, and torturing tens of thousands of people a year. When the women congregated in the plaza, police snapped at them to keep moving, so the 14 mothers walked the plaza in slow circles. They kept coming back to protest, braving nightsticks, police dogs, and the betrayal of spies who infiltrated and killed three of their leaders. They say the mothers of the plaza were fearless, says Maria Ankta. Antoklets, now 85 years old, who moves with enormous dignity, but we were scared to death. We learned to walk with fear, to be bigger than fear. We had an obligation to find the children. The mothers still walk every Thursday afternoon demanding justice with the white kerchiefs that are the sign of their international campaign for justice for all people. We never found our children, said one, but in that plaza we went to school. We told our stories 50 times. We cried together. It was our educational academy. The plaza saved us from the madhouse. At 325, the plaza would be as empty as a desert. And five minutes later, the mothers would appear like plants growing out of the subway station, the side streets, and people would come up and ask, who are you, teachers, pensioners, what are you protesting? And when Cortazar and Neruda, our great poets, heard about this in Europe, they said, the mothers are out, the military have already lost. O nobly born, you who are the son or daughter of the Buddha. These practices were offered to me as a gift from my elders, and I bring them to this place to meet the wisdom that you already carry, the wisdom from your own elders, 
and the wisdom of that one who knows what is true in yourself. This is both a difficult and beautiful and honorable way to be the way that we've been spending our time together. I thank you. Let's just sit for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.